You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network. Thank you very, very much. I'm glad to be here and to have the opportunity we have tonight to discuss something of monumental importance to the whole Church of Jesus Christ. We do not enter the discussion tonight vindictively or with an I told you so approach. We approach the subject tonight, who really wrote the Book of Mormon? Who really wrote the Book of Mormon with a great burden of love and compassion and welcome for members of the Mormon Church who are with us here now and who will be seeing this on television and hearing it over the radio. The subject we are discussing is not something small, it is not something inconsequential. It involves the lives of 3.8 million people who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. You cannot fault the Mormons for their success, their zeal, or their dedication. They literally carved an empire out of the wilderness. And you can't argue with success. They have been successful. Our national magazines point out that the income of the Mormon church is approximately $3 million per day. And their assets are uncounted as of the present moment. They have 21,000 full-time missionaries in the field spreading Mormonism's views. And they are capable of reaching all across the world with the resources they have at their disposal. They control American stores, 78% of the sugar beet industry of the United States, large blocks of stock in the Central Pacific Railroad, Zion Mercantile, the European health spas, Jack Lane's operation is owned by U.S. Industries, which is a Mormon conglomerate, Marriott Motor Hotels. All of these things bear the stamp of the Mormon activity. You cannot argue with them for what they have been able to accomplish. You cannot challenge their sincerity or their dedication or their willingness to suffer for their faith. And we would not accuse them on any grounds such as this. What we are going to be discussing tonight is the truthfulness of Joseph Smith, Jr., the Mormon prophet. For it is upon his word and the Book of Mormon that the whole Mormon church rests today. If the Book of Mormon is false, if it was written by someone other than Joseph Smith, then the claims of the Mormon church are bankrupt. And one of the Mormon's chief apostles once wrote that we should convince them by logic and by scripture if they are wrong. He said, if we were to see them in the wrong, we should correct them so that they might be saved. Well, that is the attitude of the Christian church. If Mormonism is correct, then everybody who thinks it all should be a Mormon. Because Mormonism doesn't claim to be Protestants or Catholics. It claims to be the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, to the exclusion of everybody else. Therefore, we are dealing with a tremendous challenge. And I think in the 147 years they have been in existence, they have grown from 30 people to 3.8 million people worldwide because they had zeal and they were willing to go out and evangelize for what they believed was the truth. King Solomon said, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. 
It is perfectly possible, Solomon said, to pursue what you believe with all your heart is right and true, and to be sincerely in error, and that the end of it is eternal spiritual death. We have to agree with the Word of God that the primary task of the Christian Church is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior. And we must do this to the Mormons and to everyone else. Pastor Wilkerson has said that in Melody Land we love everybody. We do. We love for the sake of the Lord Jesus, and we resist evil for the same reason, because we love the Lord Jesus. And therefore it's necessary to speak the truth in love and to bring things out where everybody can see. I'd like you to open your Bibles if you have them with you, and I hope you do. How many have your Bibles? Good thinking. Galatians, chapter 1. Galatians, the first chapter. We read the words of the Apostle Paul in a very important context. Said the Apostle, writing to a young Christian church, verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel out of heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. As we said before, verse 9, so I now say again, if anyone preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. There was a divine anathema, or damnation, pronounced upon people who perverted the gospel of Christ. And the scripture says here, even if an angel materializes and gives you any other good news than that which we have given you, you're to count the angel damned. Does that give you some idea of how strongly the Word of God speaks on the subject of other Gospels? We are warned again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I am afraid for you, verse 3, that as the serpent tricked Eve through his subtlety, your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if somebody comes and preaches another Jesus, another spirit, another Gospel, you might well go along with it. So we are warned about a counterfeit Jesus, counterfeit Holy Spirit, counterfeit gospel, counterfeit apostles, verse 13, counterfeit ministers, and all of them are under satanic control. They are his ministers, says the scripture. And they are transformed to look like Christians. And don't marvel at this, says the apostle Paul. Satan himself is transformed as an angel of light. It is no great thing if his ministers are transformed to look like the ministers of righteousness. It is possible to use the name Jesus. It is possible to use the term gospel. It is possible to say Holy Spirit. It is possible to quote the Bible. It is possible to speak of Christian baptism. It is possible to go through all of the outward appearances of Christianity. And Jesus says, when I meet those kind of people, I will say, I never knew you. Leave me, workers of iniquity. Why does he say it? Because they are not worshipers of the living God. They are not servants of Christ. They do not know him as their Lord and as their Savior. 
They have appropriated the vocabulary of Christianity, but they have never believed in Jesus Christ as their true Savior and Lord. You can have all of these outward appearances, and you can be lost, says the Scripture. Besides, if success alone is the mark of the blessing of God, then the Jehovah's Witnesses are more blessed than the Mormons, because the Jehovah's Witnesses have been around some fifty years after the Mormons, and they are rapidly catching up with the Mormons. They print more literature than the Mormons, and make more calls and more evangelism for the Watchtower than the Mormon Church. Yet the Mormons say the Jehovah's Witnesses are not of God. So it is possible to have all the appearances of Christianity, all the vocabulary, and not be a Christian. And there's only one way to get to the core of Mormon theology. Because what I read you before in Galatians chapter 1 is a description of exactly what a young man named Joseph Smith, Jr. said happened to him. An angel named Moroni appeared to Joseph in 1823 and told him that if he would dig in the hill Cumorah, there he would find miraculous plates. Joseph allegedly dug, he found golden plates. On the golden plate, written in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, which Joseph couldn't read, was a marvelous story. Joseph asked the angel for help. The angel was extremely obliging. Joseph was presented with the Urim and the Thummim from the Old Testament, two glass-like objects in bows, that when he looked through them, the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics turned into English. And from that, Joseph translated what is known today as the Book of Mormon. In the Mormon Articles of Faith, it is so important that the Book of Mormon is called, and I quote, the Word of God, close quote. It is revered by Mormons over the Bible itself. Of the Bible, they say, that it's the Word of God insofar as it's correctly translated. But they don't say that about the Book of Mormon. They say the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, period. They claim it's a second witness to the Bible. They claim it details our Lord's appearances here on this continent and his witness to the American Indians. It is a vastly detailed story which Smith translated allegedly from these plates. The question which faces us right now, an all-important question, is this. Did Joseph Smith, Jr. really get the message from an angel? Or did Joseph Smith, Jr. get the message from someplace else? Because if the Book of Mormon's false, the whole structure of the church which rests upon it disappears automatically. If Joseph lied, if Joseph perverted the documents, if Joseph got it any place else but from God, then the whole structure of Mormon theology is gone. Not because I say so but because the Mormon Church says everything rests on the Book of Mormon. So that is the real issue. That is the issue we're going to address ourselves to in just a moment. The last few years, the Mormon Church had suffered some serious setbacks. And those setbacks ought to be brought out to the public so they'll never forget it. Mormon Church has maintained for years that the Pearl of Great Price, one of its sacred books, of which I have a copy here, 
is, in effect, a divine revelation which Joseph Smith, Jr. certified, and he even translated from the book of Abraham an original papyri in Egyptian, and we have that in the book, The Pearl of Great Price, a sacred text of the Mormon Church. For many years it's been under question by scholars because of the fact that in the book of Abraham you have the awful statement that black people are under a divine curse and that people come into the world with this curse and that the Negro is under the curse and can never attain the Mormon priesthood. That's a tremendous statement because it is so opposed to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said that he would break down all the barriers which separate people, and he would instead bring us all together as one body in himself. God doesn't care what color your skin is. God only cares whether or not you've been to Calvary. Amen? But speaking in the name of God Almighty, Joseph Smith, Jr. said that the Mormon Church would regard the Negro as inferior and that they could not attain that priesthood. Should there be any doubt, I quote from Mormon Doctrine by Apostle Bruce McConkie, quote, speaking of when you existed in your spirit before you arrived here, which is a Mormon doctrine. In the pre-existent eternity, various degrees of valiance and devotion to the truth were exhibited by different groups of our Father's spirit offspring. One-third of the spirit hosts of heaven came out in open rebellion and were cast out without bodies, becoming the devil and his angels. The other two-thirds stood affirmatively for Christ. There were no neutrals. To stand neutral in the midst of war is a philosophical impossibility. The Lord said, He that is not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Matthew 12:30. Of the two-thirds that followed Christ, however, some were more valued than others. The whole house of Israel was chosen in pre-existence to come to mortality as children of Jacob. Now listen to this very carefully, because God said this. Those who were less valiant in pre-existence and who thereby had certain spiritual restrictions imposed upon them during mortality, are known to us as Negroes. I didn't say it. God said it. Such spirits are sent to earth through the lineage of Cain, the mark put upon him for his rebellion against God and his murder of Abel being a black skin. Quote, The Negroes are not equal with other races, where the receipt of certain spiritual blessings are concerned, particularly the priesthood and the temple blessings that flow therefrom. But this inequality is not of man's origin, it is the Lord's doing." Close quote. So according to divine revelation from Joseph Smith, the Negro is cursed by God. I hold here one of the most amazing documents I think ever unearthed in the history of religion. It happens to be Joseph Smith, Jr.'s translation of this Egyptian. That is the Egyptian right there. You can't see it up close. Take my word for it. It's Egyptian. And Joseph Smith's translation. 
Did Joseph have any qualifications for translating Egyptian? No, he couldn't read Egyptian. We found out that he couldn't read Egyptian after some Egyptologists began to check his translation. But in 1965, the Mormon Church was presented with the actual manuscript that Joseph Smith used to translate the Pearl of Great Price. And that manuscript was presented by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The Mormon Church hailed it as a great discovery, and the Mormon Church put to work on the translation its greatest scholar in Egyptology, Professor D.J. Nelson. Professor Nelson was designated by the head of the church to translate it. He eagerly took the manuscript which contained the book of Abraham and proceeded to translate it. When he finished his translation, he contacted the president of the Mormon church and said, we have a problem. The president of the Mormon church, quite naturally, wanted to know what the problem was. Dr. Nelson said, the problem is that what Joseph says the manuscript says and what the manuscript says are two entirely different things. He then submitted the manuscript to four Egyptologists. And they studied it and came back and said the same thing. Then Nelson tried to have it published by the Mormon Church. They willfully and deliberately suppressed the manuscript. They would not let the Mormon people see it. And the reason they wouldn't let them see it is contained in D.J. Nelson's letter of resignation to the Mormon Church. Attention First Presidency Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Salt Lake City, Utah. This letter is to inform you that it is our considered desire that my own name and those of my wife and daughter be removed from the membership roles of the Latter-day Saints Church. We, D.J. Nelson, Catherine G. Nelson, Kim Sherry Nelson, do freely and with full understanding of the implications of the step require that our names be removed from all member records of the LDS Church. I, D.J. Nelson, do hereby renounce and relinquish the priesthood which I now hold. Following my translation, the first to be published of the bulk of the hieratic and hieroglyphic Egyptian text upon the Metropolitan Joseph Smith papyri fragments, three of the most eminent Egyptologists now living published corroborating translations. These amply prove, listen, the fraudulent nature of the book of Abraham, in which lies the unjust assertion that Negroes are unworthy of participation in the highest privileges of the LDS Church. We do not wish to be associated with a religious organization which teaches lies and adheres to policies so blatantly opposed to the civil and religious rights of some citizens of the United States. He followed this up with another statement of the Church, which he declared, that the scientific community considers the book of Abraham an insult. Now, in that book of Abraham is the statement that the Negroes are cursed. So Joseph Smith, Jr. lied about the translation, lied about the Egyptian, lied about the document, and in addition, he lied about the Negro because he was a racist. And he put in there that the Negro was cursed because Joseph thought so, not because God said so. Now, that is some insight into the character 
of Joseph Smith, Jr., the Mormon prophet. A second insight into his character should also be mentioned. Joseph Smith, Jr. denied that he had ever been arrested and convicted of fortune-telling. And this is his own statement on the subject, which is pretty clear. In October of 1825, I hired with Josiah Stowell of Chenango County to dig for a silver mine. Hence arose the very prevalent story of my having been a money digger, close quote. Joseph said he never had anything to do with these things. But a Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Wesley Walters, who works for Christian Research Institute, has done an invaluable service for us. Here, unearthed from the court records of Shenango County, New York, is the actual trial conviction of Joseph Smith, Jr. for fortune-telling. A document which is unimpeachably authentic, certified. You may look for yourself anytime you wish. We will provide you with free copies if you would like to have it. It says, Joseph Smith, the glass looker. What's a glass looker? Somebody that takes stones, puts them in their hat, says they can see buried treasure, and cons people into giving them money. Joseph was caught and convicted. He says, it never happened. The Mormon church says, it never happened. We have a very important statement by Oliver Cowdery, one of whose relatives is here today. Quote, previous to his obtaining the record, some very officious person complained of him, Joseph Smith, as a disorderly person, and brought him before the authorities of the county. But there was no cause for action, and he was honorably acquitted. They deny that there is any existing proof for such a trial. Apostle John Whitsell. And it is stated, and I quote, If this court record is authentic, it is the most damning evidence in existence against Joseph Smith. Dr. Hugh Nibley, the chief apologist for the Mormon Church. Well, there's your damning evidence. In print. And we haven't heard a single word yet from Salt Lake City about how Joseph lied. But the other day, Mr. Walters came through with another one. He sent me, after some very hard digging, a copy from a magistrate who knew of Joseph Smith's trial. We have that now in the man's own handwriting. And that manuscript says that Joseph was not only tried there and convicted, but he was hauled over to another township and tried again. But the record says he took leg bail. Do you know what leg bail was? He split. <laughs> the modern translation, but that'll do. He left. Then the magistrate says he returned a year later and pleaded before the court that the statute of limitations had run and they couldn't put him in jail. Another incident of how valuable is the testimony of Joseph Smith, Jr., Racist, false translator, and allegedly owner and proprietor of the Book of Mormon. Now, there's only one way to find out if you can really trust Smith, and that's to put what he says to the test. Some of his words have remained with us, and the Mormon Church has not really been too successful in suppressing some of these particular comments. One of them I particularly like because in it, Joseph 
in his own modest fashion, made some claims for himself. As hard as it may be for you to understand, Smith claimed that he had accomplished a work that the apostles had failed to do, the prophets could not accomplish, and that even Jesus Christ had failed to accomplish. He said he was able to hold the church together. Nobody could do it but Joseph. May I quote Joseph Smith, Jr.? I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. Close quote. That may come as a shock to some of us, but we want to display the background of everything we're here for right now. Smith is a proven racist, a falsifier of documents, and a convicted fortune teller, all of which the Mormon Church doesn't want to hear. But it's what he taught that's so deadly. Smith said you've got to learn to be gods the same as all the gods have done before you. He taught that man could become a deity. Smith taught polygamy by divine decree, and then it had to be rescinded later on when the United States government opposed the Mormon Church. Smith said he gave everlasting covenants, and they terminated. Smith gave prophecies about what would happen. They didn't come to pass. And Smith and Brigham Young, his follower, proceeded to teach anti-Trinitarian doctrine and to teach that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three gods, and that there are many gods, and that every Mormon male can make it to godhood himself. Joseph specifically said, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. You can become a deity. You've got to learn to become gods. Except the black people. The Negroes can't make it because God told Joseph that. And as we have seen... Joseph told the Mormons that, but God never said a word about it. We come now to one of the great moments in research and in American Christianity. It would be possible to deliver all kinds of lectures on Mormon theology, which denies that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which denies the Christian doctrine of the Trinity which denies salvation only by grace through the cross, which teaches the pre-existence of the soul, teaches that men may become gods. And under Brigham Young taught that Jesus Christ himself came into the world by sexual relations between the Virgin Mary and a resurrected God called Adam. All done in the name of God. We don't have the time to do it. The one thing we have time to do is to uncover by the grace of God the real origin of the Book of Mormon. I went to great trouble to lay this foundation. If the Book of Mormon falls, Mormon theologians say the system cannot stand. So let's find out if it really was Joseph Smith that got it from the angels, and if Joseph actually translated it the way he said he did, or if there was another source. There are three young men I'm going to ask to come up here right now. Brethren, please join me.
This is indeed an historic moment. The gentlemen who are standing here, Dr. Howard Davis, Wayne Cowdery, Donald Scales, these are three young researchers who, by a remarkable act of God and perseverance that I have not seen in the field of research for many years, have uncovered the original manuscript, or twelve and a half pages of it, of the Book of Mormon. I think we ought to recognize that. Wayne Cowdery and I are very close because he is a descendant of Oliver Cowdery, who allegedly wrote down the Book of Mormon that Joseph was dictating. He's now a reborn Christian. I am a descendant of Brigham Young, successor to Joseph Smith, ruler of the Latter-day Saints Church, a born-again Christian. How would anybody ever think that Cowdery, the scribe, and Young, the successor, would stand together on the platform and expose the whole thing as fraudulent? Here we are. The irony of God is remarkable. Now, this story is coming out in a book called Who Really Wrote the Book of Mormon? But the story is like a detective tale. So what I'm going to do is to let you go through years of research in just minutes and arrive where they have arrived. We have a surprise guest today we didn't know about. We're going to introduce him a little bit later on. But these three men are here. Now, let me have them share with you the great research project that brought them to where they are at the present moment. This much background I can give you. Joseph Smith, Jr.'s revelation was questioned very early by people who said it sounded very familiar. They said they'd heard it before, and then they identified the source. They said that they had heard it from the writings of a retired Congregationalist minister. And from that point on, these gentlemen will pick up the thread. Howard, would you step forward? Dr. Howard Davis is a researcher, co-author of this new book coming out. And I'd like him to share with you for a few minutes just how they found the Book of Mormon document. And we're going to show you a picture of it just in case you or the Mormon church thinks we're joking. It is no joke. It's here, right in this building tonight. And that's an historic moment 147 years afterwards, we have it. Howard, share with us. I used to read um, some of Dr. Martin's books, one of them being The Kingdom of the Cults and Maze of Mormonism. And uh, in his writings and in his public lectures, Dr. Martin made the assertion that a retired Congregationalist minister by the name of Solomon Spaulding wrote what is now known the world over as the Book of Mormon. The latter part of 1974, I decided to engage in a research project to determine whether or not Dr. Martin's assertions were correct. 
At the first part of the year, January of 1975, I met uh, Wayne Cowdery in this research project. Later on, Don Scales uh, joined us as a team. We began writing letters all over the United States and the world. We began going to some of the best libraries that uh, we could at that time. Bancroft Library up in Berkeley has an excellent collection on early Mormon documents. So we went there. And uh, as we began progressing, the Mormon people began to put a great deal of pressure on Wayne. And Wayne had studied or had read the Book of Mormon and finally came to the conclusion at that time in his life that the Book of Mormon was of God. He received the burning of the breast, as the Mormon calls it, or the fluttering of the heart or the warmth of the Holy Spirit. And uh, by this expression, he felt that the Book of Mormon was a work of God. So, Wayne was baptized into the Mormon church. Of course, Wayne being a great celebrity amongst them, being a descendant of Oliver Cowdery, the second elder of the Mormon church, as well as scribe to the Book of Mormon. December of 75, I went up to Berkeley to visit my parents. And while at the Bancroft Library, I was studying portions of Solomon Spaulding's manuscript story. This was a manuscript that Mr. Spaulding had written around 1809 in Ohio. It was his first attempt at writing a history of the ancient inhabitants of this country. And uh, I wasn't that much impressed with it. It did not seem, at first glance, to resemble passages from the Book of Mormon. I went home, and a Xerox copy of the book was finally procured by Don and myself. We began examining it in the light of the Book of Mormon. We bought a Book of Mormon concordance, and we began analyzing all the various passages between both productions using the scientific literary comparative method to see if there was a singular author in both productions. I tabulated over 100 of them, even though the Mormon Church officially has declared there's not one sentence, not one word, that is common to both productions. And as Mr. Cowdery said in his excommunication trial, that's correct. There isn't one. There are hundreds. <laughs> and the bishop, who is a trial lawyer by profession, became infuriated. And both of his counselors were looking at him, and Mr. Cowdery was sitting there very stern and adamant. And uh, he began lowering his uh, posture. And Wayne went on to assert that there are indeed hundreds of parallels between the manuscript story, which is the known novel, a known novel by Solomon Spaulding, as it compares with the so-called sacred work called the Book of Mormon. After I tabulated 100 of these parallels and I sent them to Mr. Cowdery, upon receipt of that letter, he called me immediately. He said, is this correct? I said, yes, it is. I'm coming right over. And that night, we stayed up a good part of the night examining these parallels. And Wayne was shocked. They had told him that all it was was a book on Indians that nothing in Solomon Spaulding's manuscript story related to the Book of Mormon. So therefore, he could not have possibly been the author to the Book of Mormon. And so Wayne left the church. He was summoned to an excommunication trial and was found guilty and excommunicated from the Mormon church, of course, at his request. And then we began to delve into obtained some known samples of Solomon Spaulding's handwriting. Mrs. Cowles, who's the chief cataloger at Oberlin College in Ohio, where the manuscript story is now presently on deposit, sent us a Xerox of a letter 
and some other material written by the hand of Solomon Spaulding. We begin to avidly study every portion of this handwriting, the lineal base pattern, the proportionate height between letters, the spaces between words, etc. So we become so familiar with his handwriting that if we saw it in a manuscript that paralleled the Book of Mormon, the, the coveted manuscript found, we could immediately identify it, or at least it would uh, be recognizable to us and we could do further research on that paper. February of 1975, due to an erratic schedule and not eating properly and some of the things I told everybody else to do, I fell ill. And I looked at a book that had a picture in it of an old manuscript in the lower right-hand corner. And as I began analyzing that manuscript, it looked like Solomon Spaulding's handwriting. I began checking the, the various uh, comparisons between both uh, specimens. And they looked so much alike. I called Mr. Scales up, and he examined them. He had studied Spaulding's handwriting for countless hours. And we got out a magnifying glass and began looking at it. And it looked so much like Solomon Spaulding's handwriting. So, in time, we found out that that was a photo reproduction of a manuscript sheet now housed in the archives of the LDS Church at Salt Lake City, Utah, at the Church History Department. I think it's very important for this point to be made right here. This manuscript, he found, was not something that was dug up in a trunk somewhere, not a possible forgery, but it was published by the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, and they said it was an unknown scribe. They never checked the handwriting against Solomon Spaulding. What happened was, they were holding the documents in their own archives and protecting them for us, and they never even knew they had them. I like Howard to share about what happened when he discovered this particular thing. Once again, after finding out what that manuscript was, we immediately began to write the LDS Church Historian's Department asking for photo reproductions of the original Book of Mormon. They sent us some Xerox sheets, and as we began studying, especially BYU studies, spring of 1970, by Mr. Dean C. Jesse, we found that that portion was written by an unidentified scribe, some 12 sheets. And it made us indeed very suspicious, but being researchers, we have to be very objective, and we began trying and studying. First of all, we even took the the way he, the unidentified scribe began to, uh, the way he spelled words, very, very peculiar. And Mr. Cowdery tabulated all of the misspelled words in the known production of Solomon's Falling, the manuscript story, and they were identical. And then we decided that a handwriting expert or a document examiner must be called in to examine these two documents. And we didn't know how to go about it exactly. Document examiners don't come cheap. We weren't sure who to trust and who not to trust. Dr. Martin doesn't know how to do it. So we just didn't know what to do exactly about finding an honest, reputable document examiner. Miss Terry Broadway and myself uh, visited a sick friend of hers in Los Angeles. We met a man who said that his mother could be able to help us in the analyzation of handwriting. She, in turn, told us that Mr. Henry Silver has had over 50 years' experience and that the Library of Congress on numerous occasions has recommended his services on the West Coast. 
We found upon examination of his record that his credentials are impeccable and that he has had many, many long years of experience in question documents. I phoned him up and he came over and made a long, extensive study of the documents. And these were his very words. After looking at the documents, he looked up at us with a smile and he said, this is ridiculous. You boys knew this all along, didn't you? And he summoned Mr. Cowdery over to his magnification equipment. Mr. Cowdery looked at certain identifying characteristics that Mr. Silver began to point out to him. And he said that it is my conclusion, an absolute conviction, I have no doubt about it, that Solomon Spaulding wrote this portion, which of course parallels the Book of Mormon, which is otherwise known, who's otherwise known as the unidentified scribe. And from that point, we contacted another handwriting expert by the name of William Kay. And he's had over 41 years of experience in the field. His credentials are excellent. He's worked for some of the largest uh, corporations in America. He is qualified to testify in the Supreme Court of Canada. And he's also done extensive work for Scotland Yard. He's going over to Europe this summer to do uh, some criminal investigations for some of their departments. And then, of course, last but not least, we began searching for a third expert. We wanted three experts. We came across Howard C. Dolder, and we were extremely impressed with his background and qualifications. He has worked for the U.S. Treasury Department. Now, you don't get a job with the government or with the U.S. Treasury Department unless you have tremendous gifted abilities. And Mr. Dolder worked for the government for a number of years. He has also worked with the Milwaukee Police Department and other law enforcement agencies in America. And he has been to court numerous times on the subject of question documents. Incidentally, he's also an expert in identifying fingerprints. And we called him into the case. And he says it is his opinion, based on the photocopied reproductions, if they are genuine, if they are exact reproductions of the original, that it is his opinion that Solomon Spalding executed both works. And Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, so, I wish we had the time to go into all of this, but let me sum it up for you in terms that you can't possibly misinterpret. The Spalding Manuscript is in the archives of the Mormon Church. It will be examined this Tuesday by Henry Silver, shortly afterwards by Howard Dolder, and also by Mr. Kay, if we can get him to Salt Lake City, so that they may actually see the document itself. However, the Mormon Church has made reproductions of that document and certified that it's accurate. Therefore, they worked from documents which the Church recognized as accurate. Our surprise guest right now is one of these handwriting experts who came here after he found out what it was all about. because. Howard did not tell you that none of the handwriting experts ever met, ever discussed it, ever knew that it was connected with the Book of Mormon, knew absolutely nothing. In fact, Mr. Silver was the man chosen by the Mormons to go over the Howard Hughes will. So it's going to be very difficult to say amen to Henry Silver for one-sixteenth of eight hundred million dollars and then say no to him on the Book of Mormon. It just can't be done. 
comes under the heading of being under, between the rock and the hard place. <laughs> Mr. Dolder got interested, because he didn't know anything about Mormonism, never met a Mormon, knew nothing. But when he began to see what was going on, particularly since some Mormons have suggested on the radio, and doubtless will do so at other times, that somehow or other the handwriting experts aren't experts, and that if they are, we paid them off. He thought it was necessary to make an appearance here and chat with me, and we chatted. And I asked to come down and sit in the front row because his findings were reported to the Los Angeles Times. In the Times article, he certified insofar as the reproductions are accurate, this is the handwriting of Solomon Spaulding, the author of the Book of Mormon, not Joseph Smith and the Angel Moroni. Howard, would you stand up? Mr. Howard Dolder. I'm happy to say that the reason for all this is the greatest reason in the world. Jesus Christ loves Mormons. He died on the cross for them. All these years of research and work, over the years by scholars, going back to the earliest days of Joseph Smith, 1830, people trying to bring the evidence out, and each time they have been laughed to scorn, each time what they've done has been suppressed, each time everything has been poo-pooed. Now, poo-poo is gone forever. We are now facing the document. Would you kindly unroll the Book of Mormon by Solomon Spaulding and step right up there in front of the camera and let the people see. This is the handwriting expert's opinion. That twelve and a half pages of the Book of Mormon is in the handwriting of the Reverend Solomon Spaulding. There was no angel Moroni. There were no golden plates. There they are, and Joseph Smith, Jr. is a false prophet. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is introduced for the purpose of saving men out of the world. I was in Dublin, California last week, and I mentioned that this was coming, and there was a bundle of Mormons there. I asked them to raise their hand. They raised their hand. The church forbids them to come and listen to me, so they come. I hope they'll make it official, then they'll come by the thousands. They came. I lectured, I presented the evidence on racism, I presented the evidence on mistranslation, I presented the evidence on lying in the courtroom and what happened to him. After I got all finished, I said, I have nothing personally against Joseph Smith, Jr., but if a man speaks in the name of God and he lies, he's a false prophet. And the scripture says, Deuteronomy chapter 18, you shall not respect that man anymore. That's a command. 
I said to the Mormons that were there, is there any Mormon here who, if this turns out to be true, and Joseph Smith indeed stole from Solomon's Spalding, claiming that it was from God, and basing his church on it, your church, if he lied to you, will you still stay Mormons? Put up your hands. One person of all the Mormons raised their hand. One. And I was intrigued. I said, you mean if he's a false prophet, a liar, a fraud, a deceiver, if he's made merchandise of all you people, still, still, you'll be a Mormon? She said, I believe. I believe. Last night on radio, a Mormon missionary called in, just came back from the field. He accused all the handwriting experts of being paid lackeys. He accused these gentlemen of being my employees. And I never knew them until Wayne Cowdery showed up at my house and said, I've got something I think you'll be interested in. Whee! I knew nothing about it until then. I want to tell you something. I believed what they were saying. And I knew it would come out in the open. This Mormon missionary said last night on the radio. I said, if, he, if it's proven that he's a fraud, if it's proven that it's a lie, if the documents are fallacious, and I went right down the line. I said, will you still be a Mormon? Yes. And I said to him, what would you consider evidence that Joseph Smith was a false prophet? Tell me. And so help me, this is what came back. If Joseph Smith himself tells me he's a false prophet, I'll believe him. Well, of course, if Joseph appeared and told him he was a false prophet, then, of course, it would be a demon and not Joseph. So anyway, you can't win. But this is the truth. This is the truth. The Scripture says, now mark it in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, if our gospel's hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not. So who is blinding the minds of the Mormon people? The God of this age. And their minds cannot see, nor can they comprehend. So what we want to do is pray for them that the Lord will open the eyes and the ears of their souls. Amen. What we want to do is reach out in love to them. Don't go out of this meeting with I told you so written all over your face or out of your mouth. The evidence has been presented here. It'll be in their book, available in our bookstore in about six weeks, who really wrote the Book of Mormon. All the documentation you want. My book, The Maze of Mormonism, will carry this and additional materials recommending what they have done. It's there. When you get your hands on it, digest it, and go out from this church loving the Mormons and showing them that they've been deceived by Joseph Smith. There's a difference between the Mormon church and the Mormon people. The Mormon church suppresses the Mormon people in the truth they know exists. But the Mormon people are the victims of the structure and the victims of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And we want to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will set them free.
There is so much more, so little time. But that night in Dublin, one hand went up in the back in the Mormon row. And I said, if you want to receive the real Jesus as your Savior, if you want to give up the Mormon Jesus and come to the real Jesus, the door's open. The Mormon Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer who became the devil. The Mormon Jesus was created by God as a second God. And there are millions of gods. The Mormon Jesus was married to the Marys and Martha and procreated children. The Mormon Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is the creator of Lucifer, not his brother. For Colossians 1 says, By him were all things created, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he exists before all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. A young lady came down the front of the church, Valley Christian Center in Dublin, received the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior, and she was hugging me and crying and hugging me and hugging me. And I want to tell you, when a Mormon hugs me, that's grace. And she says, I found Jesus, praise the Lord. Today, there are Mormons in this audience. I know you're there. Because I saw you shaking your head when you thought I was wrong and nodding your head when you thought I was right. And then I saw you look at that document, craning your necks out of the seats because you want to know if what they've got is really Solomon Spaulding. Answer, you better believe it is. Check Time Magazine and Christianity Today, and United Press. You'll see for yourself. Nobody's printing anything. And Howard Dolder is not going to put his name on the line, nor is Henry Silver, nor Mr. K, unless they have the expertise to make those kind of decisions. And neither am I going to risk 27 years of research unless I know the documents are genuine. They're genuine. Spaulding wrote it. And you Mormons that are sitting out there, Joseph lied to you. He deceived you. He's a racist. And he's not a prophet of God. If you want any evidence, documents, photocopies, anything else, you can have it. But the most important message you ever heard in your life, you heard today. The Mormon church is not the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. The Christian church stands. And Joseph Smith said, Joseph Smith said, Nobody had ever done a work like his. He would come out on top. He was assassinated very shortly after he made that statement. He did not come out. He went under. And Mormonism has gone on with a martyred prophet. But he was no martyr. Smith was shooting at the people that were trying to kill him. Martyrs don't do that. Martyrs die praising the Lord as Stephen did and calling for forgiveness. Martyrs don't lie shooting the people, shooting at them. So you Mormons who are here with us right now, 
and other people who are here with us. This isn't an expose of Mormonism. This is an exercise in history and a revelation of truth by a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. We're so grateful that God has made this information available for the salvation of the Mormon people. They don't have to be racist anymore. They don't have to support the polytheism of Joseph Smith. They don't have to believe he was a prophet. They can turn from Smith and Young, and they can come back to Jesus Christ. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.